0: If we haven't met, my name is Lance. I serve as a pastor here at the church. My family and I have been here for about 10 and a half years now, which we're super grateful. We've uh, been loved so well by the the church, and we're happy to to not only be here, but to get to consider Matthew's gospel with you. I know this is an honor for me to do this, and I hope that I can be helpful. What I'm going to do is read the first 13 verses of Matthew 17. A lot of times at this point, when I come to reading the text, I usually try to frame what's happening and try to show you the importance of it, the nuance of it, to to highlight or get your expectation going. Uh, I don't think I need to do any of that with this passage because it's pretty plainly awesome. So I'm just going to read starting in verse 1 of Matthew 17 to verse 13, and then we'll pause and consider it. Matthew records this. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John his brother and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. What a moment. Just a glimpse, a taste, a little peek At the true nature of Jesus. As amazing as this moment is in all of Matthew's gospel, and Mark records it as well in the ninth chapter, and so does Luke in his ninth chapter, it's tempting for us to say, wow, this is that one time Jesus appeared crazy like this when he was transfigured. But I think that the desire as we read this is for us to see that what really is taking place here Is This is the one time not when Jesus looked different or strange, but when Jesus looked as he is and as he eternally will be. This is a moment when reality invaded whatever this is, this experiment, this experience in a fallen world. And what I want to do over the next number of moments is consider the sight. I want to think about the sight, which is this transfiguration, this one glorious sight. And then I want to focus in on three sayings. So if we had a little working title for today as we consider this, it would be one sight and three sayings. And as we consider each of those things, one sight and three sayings, I hope that we begin to grow in our imagination and our affection for this Jesus whom we will see one day in full glory just as Peter and James and John did. I was trying to think of a moment when I saw something magnificent and glorious I don't know if something comes to your mind when you think about this moment that was just indelible, something that is a shining example of glory to you. And quite honestly, in view of the transfiguration, I came up short. I did think of something, though, that's slightly similar, except much worse and slightly inverted. I thought about how in 1996, my family also made a pilgrimage to a mount of sorts, more like a hill. But we took a a car ride, some seven or eight hours, a pilgrimage to that great bastion of patriotism, Mount Rushmore. And when we got to Mount Rushmore after driving most of the day, we decided to go up first thing as we drove in, and there was maybe only an hour left before it closed, closed, and so we raced into the parking lot and ran through all of the things we needed to get up into the gift shop to the big viewing area. And we rushed in there and there's an open window and we looked out and we saw nothing. It was cloudy and overcast. So Mount Rushmore, which we were assured was actually there according to our atlas. Remember those? Like a real map. And there was a gift shop there. There were all the trappings of something magnificent and glorious. It just wasn't there. And we spent time waiting around, hoping to catch a glimpse. And every once in a while, like maybe every 10 to 15 minutes, you would start to hear a murmur and then finally a shout, it's there, there it is, there it is! And you'd run over from whatever lame display was there and you'd go over and then just barely through the clouds you'd see like half of a nose of one of the presidents. And I bring all this up to say that in, you know, in many ways, Mount Rushmore. We're on the side of a mount. There's a cloud, but it's just this sort of inverted anti-hero experience of the transfiguration. The cloud was not a source of awe and wonder at the presence of God. The cloud was hiding everything that was supposed to be beautiful. And then the thing that we saw was slightly disappointing, if I'm honest, probably because I was a teenager at the time, and most things in life are slightly disappointing to a teenager, but also because, well, if you've never been it's, uh, it's not the best thing I've ever seen. I'll just say it that way. The visitor center and all that's gotten much better. I went back many years later, but still, it was a little bit underwhelming. So what I want you to imagine is an inverted Mount Rushmore, a kind of thing where a cloud comes and brings tidings of more awe and more wonder, not less, where vision is clear for the first time. Reality strikes in through the fallenness of the world, and where the glory is absolutely astounding to the point it is unforgettable. What I want to do is walk through and describe this site, what took place at the transfiguration, and then, as I mentioned, we're going to look at three sayings. What we find here in Matthew 17 is that Peter, James, and John were invited by Jesus to witness what is a pinnacle moment of their lives, a unique time in all the Gospels. Now, amazingly, Peter, James, and John is this sort of inner circle of, with Jesus. They were not only invited here to witness this high point, but later in Matthew 26, we're going to see that they are also invited to another moment in Jesus' life, this one considered to be his lowest. They will be invited to the Garden of Gethsemane. And these disciples are invited by Jesus because he is their rabbi and they are his disciples, his learners, His followers. They will be witness to all that Jesus undertook to save us. This point, we're not quite there to Gethsemane yet, but this point, they see his glory. It says that he was changed before them in such a way that they probably never, ever forgot and perhaps could never fully explain I think reading Matthew 17 and realizing their experience helps us when we come to their writings. John chapter 1, verse 14. John pens a, go- a gospel way later in his life, likely some 50, 60 years after this experience. And this is what he writes in the 14th verse of John chapter 1. He says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You can imagine as an aging man writing this down and thinking back on these moments. He writes and he says, we have seen his glory and he meant it. He was present in this moment in time. Peter writes something similar in 2 Peter chapter 1. Here's the 16th verse of that chapter. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were... What does Peter say? Eyewitnesses of His majesty. John says, We saw. We were there. It was glorious. His letters, the epistles of John, indicate as well. He says, No, we, we tasted, we saw, we felt, we knew this experience stayed with Him. Peter says, We were eyewitnesses of, How can I even explain it? It was majestic. We saw His majesty. And this happens in a flash. In Matthew, or in Mark chapter 9 or in Luke 9, which also record this instance, it seems as though the disciples may have fallen asleep or coming out of, a sleep, out of sleepiness, which is common with them. It happens in the garden as well. It happens at different times when Jesus says, could you please just wait and pray and not be so sleepy? But they awake and they realize that right before their eyes, Jesus transfigures the words there that they come from the idea of a metamorphosis, a molding of into something different. And he transfigures before them and it says that he shines like the sun. His face shines like the sun. Now this begins immediately to bring illusions of the Old Testament. It's been said by commentaries that if you could pick one passage that has the most little instances of things that remind you of the Old Testament, this might be it. They're on a mountainside, and it's a father who's preparing a son to be sacrificed, and then there's a cloud that comes like he did with Moses, and then he's the lawgiver on the side, and Moses is there. There's all of these amazing allusions to the Old Testament, and this is one like it. When Moses had come down from the mountain, his face shone, but there's something very different. Moses, we are told, His face was shining because he had received a sort of afterglow effect. He was not the source of the light, and it faded over the course of time. Because he's not the source of the light, he simply was reflecting it, sort of like coming in contact with something that's radioactive. You'll get that on you for a while, but you might not be the source of it. I listened to a story last week of a Boy Scout who was attempting to become an Eagle Scout, and for his project, this is in the 80s or 90s, he determined that for his project to become an Eagle Scout, he would create his own nuclear reactor. And the most amazing thing is, yes, it was illegal, and two, he succeeded, which is, which is shocking. But the point being there is the reason that they found this and figured it out is because at a certain point, the things that had been in contact with what he created were radiating. That's like Moses. How is Jesus different? How is his glory different? It says that he was shining like the sun Maybe I'll just say it plainly like this, Jesus shined not as a reflection of the sun or of light, but as the source of the light. Jesus is radiating light because he is himself light. Revelation says that in the future days, in the new creation, in the new heavens, the new earth, the new city, there will be no need of a sun because the lamb is the sun. Jesus is shining because he is the sun source, he's not merely sun burned. Does that make sense? That's the the, the contrast here. His glory is blinding because He is inherent light. And He's shining there. And then a second surprise. There appeared to them. Now, I confess to you, we're not sure exactly what does that mean. What does the appearance mean? How was it? Was it physical? Was it not? This is some thousand plus years after Moses Elijah, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, but they say, here's what we saw. Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Now, there were probably a million things racing through their minds at this time. If I could stop and ask a few questions, I would have a few. Uh, here's a couple of them. How did you know it was Moses and Elijah? <laughs> like, oh, you know, he always wore that red dress or whatever, you know, like the, what do they call those though? Yeah, those, I think those are different answers, but whatever those were, how do they know it was Moses and Elijah? I don't know. It's just that they knew. I would ask a second question. Jesus, it tells us in the Gospels, had a custom of going off by himself to pray. I would have immediately thought, are you talking to people all the time? Are you just showing up with friends in the middle of the night and we didn't know it? Or is this a one-time thing? And there'd be so many questions. My guess is they were also wondering about Moses and Elijah specifically and for a couple of reasons. One, neither Moses nor Elijah, according to Deuteronomy 34 or 2 Kings chapter 2, had a normal burial. Elijah, you may remember well, actually just coasted off up into heaven. So they would have been thinking, wait, is he even here the whole time? Moses died more traditionally, and it's recorded as his death, but there's an odd thing at it in Deuteronomy 34 that says that no one knew the site of his grave, and it has never been found to this day. So there had been rumors to say, well, what happened with Moses exactly? So you can imagine the disciples being shocked by a transfigured, shining Jesus, then somehow knowing it's Moses and Elijah and all that would have been circulating. Right in the midst of this, Peter begins to speak. Stop me if you've heard this one before. Peter begins to speak. And he just says... It's good that we're here, which that seems to be a true statement. He's probably just worried that he's going to be rebuked again like he had been previously. But he says, If you wish, I'll make three tents here and we can stay. He's like a little kid who doesn't want the, the playtime with his friends to end. So he goes to his parents and he's like, What if we just had a sleepover? What if, what if they stayed? And Jesus doesn't have to rebuke him because in the midst of his speaking, a bright cloud overshadows them. Now, in one sense, I think Not only were they more in awe because the cloud comes, a cloud of lightness, which doesn't that seem like an oxymoron? Doesn't that seem like something only God can do, a bright cloud? When I was at Mount Rushmore, it was a dark cloud that ruined things. In this case, God is present in a bright cloud that brings life. I'm sure that Peter perhaps was relieved because he didn't have to continue on with the thing that he was saying. One of my favorite things, just as a side note, about studying the Bible is that this is in Mark 9 and Luke 9 as well. It's likely that Mark got most of his information for his gospel, which is probably the first gospel, from Peter. He was a close associate of Peter. He likely wrote it from Rome, which is where Peter was was at for a majority of the time. And so when you think about it from this angle, there's a detail added in Mark chapter 9 that's interesting. It says that at this moment when he began to speak, it says, well, he did not know what to say because they were terrified. And it just makes me laugh to think of Peter retelling the story to Mark and then being like, I know it's dumb I I didn't know what to say I just panicked they were there so I thought let's make a tent he's justifying himself but in the midst of this statement the cloud comes and then a voice comes from heaven this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased listen to him now before I move on to the sayings which I believe there are three of them here to consider. I just want to point out the significance of both Moses and Elijah. Moses, considered the greatest leader, the one who came to rescue, the one who came to save, who led an exodus. All the images of saving the firstborn from death, the lawgiver himself. And then Elijah, And Elijah is the one that's the most confusing to them because verses 9 through 13, that's the question that they ask. And just as a a primer, a very short introduction to the whole subject, Elijah was extremely important according to Old Old Testament prophecy and Jewish practice. The last two verses of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, indicate that before the Messiah comes, maybe we'll just read verse 5 together, before the Messiah comes, there needed to be the spirit of Elijah, or Elijah himself would come. It said this in the fifth verse of Malachi 4, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So Elijah was not only a prophet in real time, but as the first, more or less, first and greatest prophet, he became a prophet's prophet. He was a prophet himself, but he also represented something concerning God's ability To speak truth and to call for repentance. In the same way that Moses was an actual leader in real time, but he came to represent more than that. He was the leader's leader, the one who would give hope to God's people. By this time, there became a common practice that continues to this day in Jewish families. When they participate in the Passover meal, you set out all of the things that are necessary for the meal and the Leader of the household, prepare the sayings and the prayers to go through everything. And then someone has to set out the table and all the chairs. And every single time they set this up, they leave one chair empty. And if you were a small child and you were curious, maybe you would want to sit there. And so you would say, why is that chair empty? I'm going to go over there. And you would be told, no, 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 no. We're leaving it open for Elijah. Because baked in to Messianic tradition is this reality from Malachi 4, that Elijah has to come and then we will know the Messiah is coming. So these disciples see Elijah now standing with Jesus. And they may not be the smartest people in the class. They're not the sharpest tools in the shed, right? But maybe they're starting to put this together. Elijah, Jesus, Jesus, Elijah. You see how they're going back and forth and they're thinking of this. And so they come back and they say, Doesn't Elijah have to come before the Messiah? And then Jesus says, well, actually, I tell you that the spirit of Elijah has come. John the Baptist, it was prophesied in Luke chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, that the spirit of Elijah would be on him, that he would proclaim a a prophetic message of repentance and to clear the way for the Messiah. And like Elijah, who was mistreated despite his truth-telling, John the Baptist was killed, and Jesus says, I will walk in their path. I'm glorified now, but I'm going to go through suffering. And so he explains the great significance. It's not just that Moses and Elijah were great hangs. <laughs> like, oh, you got to spend the night somewhere. Who do I want to hang out with? I mean, maybe they were. They might have been great dudes. But they also had a massive level of significance for the assurance that Jesus was the Messiah. So this brings us to the three sayings. Each of these sayings, I believe, have a different purpose. The first purpose, and maybe closest to the purpose of the whole event, is assurance. Peter, James, and John, and all of those who would read the testimony of Jesus afterward, needed assurance that he was the Messiah to come. The second saying that we're going to look at was instruction. There's some instruction that's given from heaven. Not only assurance concerning Jesus, but instruction concerning him. And the last one we're going to look at is an invitation. There's a saying that is an invitation. So let's look at these each individually. A cloud comes, heaven opens, a voice booms and proclaims the identity of Jesus as the beloved Son. Not just any Son. The idea of beloved here is the chosen Son. The one who is the Christ, the Messiah. The Father speaks from heaven, this voice of God, that Jesus is that Son. More than that, he says of this son, I am well pleased, meaning he carries with him righteousness. This son has right standing with the Father. This would have been a callback, a repeat. Perhaps because Peter, James, and John were likely not there, but at the baptism of Jesus in Matthew chapter 3, we see a very similar scene. It says in verse 16, When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. Behold, the heavens were opened to him, he saw the spirit of god descending like a dove and coming to rest on him and behold a voice from heaven said this is my beloved son with whom i am well pleased this saying from heaven is a doubling down on an assurance that jesus is in fact the one that if we are bound to jesus we have not only a savior and a king and a messiah but we have family. We have belonging and invitation to the family of God in this son. So the disciples needed assurance and they would give assurance after the resurrection to all who would listen that God had given his son. The second saying is one of instruction. It's the part that's not in Matthew 3 but is added anyway. It says, after with whom I am well pleased, listen to him. Now there's nothing wrong with the phrase listen to him it's good advice if you have the savior of the world the one who is all glorious the source of all light who can beckon moses and elijah from nothing who is the lawgiver who stands between you and death and resurrection it's decent advice listen to him in fact i could just close the book hey you know that jesus guy listen to him let's go to brunch that's good advice it'd be fine but i want to invite you to see that this instruction has deeper meaning for those who are paying attention Just as Elijah was supposed to have a forerunner to come before the Messiah, there was also a prophecy from Deuteronomy chapter 18 concerning a future Moses-like figure. So Moses led them out of Exodus. Moses was the lawgiver. And then Moses says, you know, someone like me will come again in the future. Let's look together at the 15th verse of Deuteronomy 18. It says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. Remember now, this is Moses, someone like me, from among you, from your brothers. He will come in the line of Israel. And then he he says this at the end of verse 15, it is to him you shall listen. Verse 16, he says, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb, on the day of the assembly when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see the great fire anymore, lest I die The presence of God was too terrifying for them. The Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up before them a prophet like you from among their brothers, like you, someone like Moses. And then what will happen at the end of verse 18? I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. So God has promised that one like Moses will come that he will have the word of God, like the word of God given to Moses in the law, and that when he speaks, people will listen. Now Peter and James and John, they're up on the mountain, again, not the sharpest tools in the shed, but they're looking, Elijah, Jesus, Jesus, Elijah, Elijah, Jesus, they're thinking, Jesus, Moses, Moses, Jesus, back and forth, and then a voice booms from heaven and says, listen to him, listen to this one who has come instructions given to say the word of God is in the mouth mouth of this son when Jesus speaks it is the Lord's command the final saying is an invitation you see Peter James and John are in the same predicament that those who were at the assembly next to the mount at Sinai were the presence of God was simply too overwhelming. It says of Peter, James, and John, the same thing happened to them that happens nearly every time someone comes to the true presence of God. They don't dance around. In fact, I don't remember if this is that, in that song or not, though I can only imagine song or not, but I wish there was one line in it like this. I can only imagine how fast I'd fall on my face as if dead. I'd be terrified. He'd be crazy. You know what I mean? Like, couldn't that be a part of the song? Now, they don't have to stay there But let me just say this is a great reality. When you encounter God, so sometimes that great cry from people who are like, I don't know, if God wanted me to believe in Him, He should just show up. Just make Himself more obvious. Just come. I usually want to say something like, I don't think you know what you're asking for. Because the presence of God is an all-consuming fire. Fire. The presence of God, His voice is so powerful, it says that it breaks the cedars. The greatest imagined huge sequoia trees of the day shatter at a mere breath from this God. God dwells in in unapproachable light. The power of His perfection is burning such that a moment in His presence in your sin would evaporate you. And the disciples fall on their face Peter goes from ready to build a tent to shaking in fear on the ground. And I looked this word up because I thought, well, maybe fear here just means reverence. You know, the sort of way we come into church, reverence. And I looked it up and I'm like, no, it's just plain old fear. They're just scared. Like a spider fell down their shirt. My dad was terrified of spiders as a kid. he'd always tell the same story. How he just froze. He couldn't move. And that's what happens in the presence of God. So what Jesus says is not a small thing, an invitation for them to rise and have no fear. And I want you to think about this as a picture of all humanity. There are great truths concerning the world. One is God is holy and perfect and will judge the world concerning sin and righteousness. There is coming a judgment day. And God does not trifle with sin. He is not small. He is big. He is not weak. He is powerful. He is not lax on sin. He is holy with a piercing righteousness. That is the great reality of the world. And a second reality of the world is this. We are none of those things. Left to our own devices, where we should be faithful, we are faithless. Where we should be righteous, we are unrighteous. Where we should be grateful, we are demanding. Where we should be humble, we are proud. The way Scripture describes it is this, that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. In the presence of God, apart from an intervention, we are not just like Peter, James, and John who fell on their faces as as if dead, but we are actually dead. And herein lies the great conundrum, the great quandary of all existence. How will you and I, sinners, ever withstand the presence of God? How will we not fold like Israel did at Mount Sinai and say, please stop talking, just leave, take the fire and go? We can't handle your presence anymore. Jesus is going to later say in his Olivet Discourse that there's coming a day when the presence of God comes in judgment where people will beg to be put to death. How will you and I endure this piercing presence forever? Well, the only hope we have is in these two words that introduces the last saying, Jesus came. Peter, James, and John, flat on their face, terrified, Jesus comes. No one has ever had greater hope than that. There's never been a moment where there's an actual hope for withstanding the presence of God if Jesus had not come. Jesus comes to them. Note, they didn't army crawl their way to Jesus with their last breath and strength. They're stuck there, Jesus comes. More than that, he reaches out and he touches them. The miracles of Jesus teach us that he is not afraid to go where things are sinful, where things are broken. You get the sense from people when he goes to a leper and he touches them to heal them that everyone wants to scream out, don't touch them, you might get what they have. But the miracle of Jesus is that He goes to those places. He draws near to them. He touches them and He says, no, 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 I totally know. I want them to maybe get what I have. He goes and touches them and then He speaks to them this invitation. He says, rise and have no fear. Can you imagine that? Puny little humans like us, no fear in the presence of God. No fear, not on our faces, but standing shoulders back in awe and wonder rise and have no fear. This is the only hope for any human being that has ever existed in time. If Jesus had not come and if he does not touch and if he does not speak to you and say, rise, have no fear, then we have no expectation but judgment. But it is not judgment that gets me up in the morning. It's not judgment that keeps the church going through all these years. It's hope It's the good news that Jesus has, in fact, come, and he does cry out. He does invite. He says, to all who would listen, rise and have no fear. In fact, there's coming a day when your greatest enemy, death itself, you will have to endure. You will go to the grave and the hope of the resurrection. Remember when Jesus said, don't tell anybody about this until after I've been raised from the dead. My guess is that it takes on more meaning when you imagine a Jesus one day in perfection, meeting him face to face, and he reaches down and he says, rise, have no fear. This is good news. And I don't think you can come up with better news than this. It's hope itself. It's resurrection itself. It's life itself. The only mediator between us and terrifying judgment is Jesus. And here's the good news. You have Jesus. You can have Him. So there's been assurance, and I hope that you're assured this morning that this son, Jesus, is the beloved son of God. He is who he says he is. I hope that this morning that you have taken instruction. You can listen to him. He's trustworthy. He loves you. And more than that, I hope that this morning that you hear an invitation. That more than anything, one day, what you will need is the resurrection hope of Jesus. You will need him to say to you, rise and have no fear, or we have no hope. And I hope that you take him up on this invitation. I hope that with simplicity you look. I hope that you simply open your hands and that you feel the peace of God bringing you fear-breaking power. Jesus, for just a moment, shows them what he's really like. And for all who are in Christ, there's coming a day where we will see him face to face where this will not be an anomaly but will be consistent with eternity. So please, do not carry the burdens of your sin. Do not run from the presence of God. Don't stay under threat of judgment. Don't go to the grave and stay there but listen to this invitation. Rise and have no fear because Christ is with you. Let's pray.